Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. The scripture reading today is from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 36 to 41. Then Peter stood up with the eleven, raised his voice, and addressed the crowd. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The promise is for you and your children, and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words he warned them, and he pleaded with them, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. For those who accepted his message were baptized, and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Thanks, Fred. Morning, church. Good to see you all. My name is Pete, and I uh, want to welcome you, especially if you're a guest or a visitor with us. We're really, really glad that you're here. Um, before we come to the teaching for this week, I want to take a moment to tell you about the new formation group that's starting next week. Um, if you don't know, here at Antioch, in addition to our Sunday morning services, we also have smaller groups that gather uh, throughout the week. And we have two kinds of groups. We have community groups, which are groups of people that meet in homes, usually over a meal, to share life together, to pray for each other, to encourage each other. And they're kind of committed to each other for the long haul. And then we have formation groups, which are short-term groups for four, six, eight weeks, something like that, that usually gather around a specific spiritual practice or a topic of study or something like that. Um, next week, we have a new formation group that's launching around the topic of faith and nonviolence. <clears throat> and I'm really, really excited that this is happening. Um, if I had to guess what Jesus' most famous words are, um, I think I would say they're from the Sermon on the Mount, where he says, you've heard it said, love your neighbors but hate your enemies, but I tell you to love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Um, the question that this formation group is going to be wrestling with is, what if Jesus was serious? <laughs> what if he actually had a vision that his followers would be known as those who loved and not hated their enemies. And then what would it look like for followers of Jesus to take that seriously? In practical terms, in the world that we live in, what would that actually look like? Um, all kinds of issues, all kinds of questions. What does that mean for the way we see violence and war and conflict and weapons. Um, there are branches of Christianity that take this stuff really seriously. I have a Mennonite friend who likes to say, when Jesus said, love your enemies, I think he meant don't kill them, um, which is probably a good start. Um, 
So this new group is gonna be looking at what does the Bible teach about violence, and then talking about how might Jesus and our faith in Jesus transform the way we live as his people in a world that is filled with violence, all different kinds of violence. And so this group starts a week from today on Sunday, April 30th, and it's gonna meet for four weeks in a row. And it's gonna meet at 9 a.m. on Sunday, so during our first service, uh, upstairs in the loft. And uh, the idea is that you can come uh, at nine o'clock for the formation group and then stick around for the 1045 service if you'd like. Um, the group's gonna be led by one of our elders, Rick Gerhardt. And um, what's cool is Rick will be the first to tell you that of all the things that he's studied and is something of an expert on, this is a fairly new area of study for him. And so the hope is that there will be a conversation and a community that forms around this topic. Um, no matter where you're coming from, whatever uh, positions you've landed on or questions you're asking, um, everybody's welcome. So if that's interesting to you, I wanna encourage you, starting next Sunday uh, and for the next four Sundays after that, 9 a.m. for our Faith and Nonviolence group. And uh, you can register online on the groups page if you'd like. Um, finally, if you're not able to attend the group, or even if you are, um, we, we have a book, um, kind of our church-wide formation book for this month, um, called Jesus and Nonviolence, A Third Way. And so it's a way just to invite all of us into this conversation. A lot of our formation books are pretty hefty, but look how cute this is. This <laughs> is a tiny, tiny little book. And I think you could probably read this in an hour or two. And so um, even if you're not able to join the group, um, I'd encourage you to pick up a copy of this out on the merch table and uh, over the next month, kind of be part of the journey that we're on as a church together. So, sound good? Yeah. Anybody want this? Oh, oh my gosh, Phyllis, are you okay? All right. <laughs> I'm sorry, I gotta work on that. Okay. You were a third baseman, right? Uh, I had your... We, uh, we're in the book of Acts for these seven Sundays of Easter. And um, the book of Acts, as you may know, is basically a sequel to the Gospel of Luke. And it tells the story of the first 30 years of Christianity and how the gospel of Jesus spread from Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And um, last week, if you were here, Sean led us into Acts by looking at the sermon the apostle Peter preached to the crowd on the day of Pentecost. And so Sean covered the first half of Peter's sermon in Acts chapter two, and today we're gonna cover the second half of Peter's sermon. So if you are keeping score at home, you'll notice Peter gives roughly a three-minute sermon in Acts, and between Sean's sermon last week and mine today, we're gonna talk about it for about an hour, which uh, may seem a little excessive. But I would like to point out in verse 40, it says, with many other words, he warned them. So we're just kind of being biblical and doing due diligence here. So um, I want to start by drawing our attention to what happens after Peter gives this sermon. The very end, verse 41 says, those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. This is crazy. Peter preaches a three-minute sermon, plus many other words, and the church grows from about 120 to over 3,000 in one day. 
And then from there, as we know, Christianity spreads like wildfire across the Roman Empire. And so this is a historical fact that's puzzled historians for centuries now. How did this small ragtag group of uneducated Jews with no money, with no cultural power, launch a movement that would eventually spread to the entire world and change the course of human history forever? What was it, in other words, about these first Christians that made their message so attractive and their mission so successful? Uh, History tells us that there are several factors, and Tim Keller sums them up like this. First, Christians died better than anyone else. The first Christians were fearless in the face of death. When they were thrown into the arena with the lions coming after them, these early Christians were singing and praising God in the midst of it. And so one of the reasons that early Christianity spread the way it did in the pagan world is that they had never seen anything like it. They'd never seen anyone face death the way Jesus' followers did. Second, early Christians were more inclusive than anyone else. Up until Christianity, religions were divided by region, by race, by class, by culture, by gender. Um, If you wanted to convert to another religion, you would basically have to convert to another culture first and often learn a new language. But when Christianity came along, it was open to everyone. Men and women, rich and poor, slave and free, Greek and Jew, everyone. And there's nothing else like that. And not only was it open to everyone, but it was especially good news for the poor, the oppressed, for those on the margins of society. So for example, women, in every other faith were viewed as second-class citizens at best. But the early church rejected that thinking and instead elevated and empowered women to their rightful place, serving and leading the church alongside men as equals. And so this is part of why Christianity blew up so early. And finally, not only did Christians die better and include better, but they also loved better than anyone else. At one point, the Roman emperor Julian, who hated Christians, wrote a letter to his friend and basically said, we can't stop these Christians. And the reason they're so popular is that they take care of all the poor, as opposed to the Jews that just take care of the Jewish poor and the Romans that take care of the Roman poor and the Greeks that take care of the Greek poor. He said, the Christians take care of everybody. Um, They were generous. They freely gave of their money and their possessions, and they happily inconvenienced themselves for the sake of making sure everyone had enough. And so those are a few of the historical reasons that the early church was so successful in spreading their message across the world. But what's interesting is that history alone still can't really explain why this happened. Why did did the early Christians... um, Why were they able to love the way they were able to love? Where did they get that courage? Where did they get that sense of justice? Where did they get that vision and passion for radical hospitality? History can tell us what happened, but it can't tell us why it happened. There's a historian who taught at Yale named Ken Scott Latourette, and he wrote this massive seven-volume series called A History of the Expansion of Christianity. And here's how he, as a historian, sums up the problem. 
He says, it's clear that at the very beginning of Christianity, there must have occurred a vast release of energy, unequaled in the history of the race. Without it, the future course of the faith is inexplicable. Something happened to the people who associated with Jesus. That burst of energy was ascribed by the early disciples to the founder of their faith. But listen to what he says here. Why this occurred may lie outside the realms in which historians are supposed to move. So he's going, my job is to deal with historical facts, not to speculate about the supernatural. But his conclusion is, something happened. (laughs) And of course he's right. What was that event that released a burst of energy that is unequaled in human history? Well, of course the Bible tells us that event was the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and the outpouring of his spirit into his church. So yeah, the first Christians lived lives of radical courage and generosity and love and justice. But where did all that come from? It came from an unshakable belief that Christ was risen. So death was no longer a problem. And it came from the spirit of Jesus, the same spirit who sealed Christ's identity in the love of his father and empowered him to lay his life down for the life of the world, that same spirit living in his people. And so if you have a group of people who believe that, word is gonna spread and the world is going to change. And what's crazy is that eventually this Jesus movement that started in Jerusalem, Israel around the year 30 AD would one day make its way all the way around the globe to this remote vacation town in the high desert of central Oregon. Like sometimes as US Americans, we think the ends of the earth is Zimbabwe or Papua New Guinea or something like that. But the truth is we're part of a movement that started 7,000 miles away from here. Bend, Oregon is the ends of the earth. And here we are some 2,000 years later worshiping the same risen Christ, receiving the same Holy Spirit and preaching the same gospel. So I just wanna make sure that we know when we read a story like Acts 2, we understand that we're reading our family history. This is our story as members of Christ's church, and it's a story that he's still writing through us today, which is pretty awesome. What I want to do is focus on the final words of Peter's Pentecost sermon here. And he's speaking to a crowd of Jewish people as a fellow Jew, And he spends the first part of his sermon reminding this Jewish crowd of what the Hebrew scriptures taught about this Messiah that God had promised he was going to send for them. And so for centuries, the Jewish people had been waiting for their Messiah, their rescuer, their emancipator, the one who would come sent from God to set them free from the slavery and the oppression that these people had endured for generations and generations. And so Peter's message to his fellow Jews really is kind of summed up as a good news, bad news situation. Here's how he ends it, his final line in verse 36. Peter says, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Drop mic. Now, Here's the good news, he says. The Messiah has come. The one that we've been waiting for, 
for hundreds of years. The wait is over. He's finally here. That's the good news. The bad news, you killed him. This Jesus, whom you crucified, God has made both Lord and Messiah. So it's important to remember that Peter is speaking here to a specific group of people and referring to a specific recent event. So um, let's stick a pin in Pentecost for a moment, and I want us to go back to Good Friday. 50 days before Pentecost, Peter, uh, where Peter was preaching, 50 days prior was Passover. So Pentecost means 50. It comes 50 days after the Passover. And so let's imagine it as we're watching this whole story unfold as a TV show. Okay, so we're watching the TV show. Peter's up there on Pentecost preaching and he breaks the bad news to the crowd. The Messiah has come and you killed him. And then there's a flashback and the subtitle says 50 days earlier, okay? We're gonna flashback, rewind 50 days. And now instead of Peter preaching to a crowd, we see another person standing up in front of a crowd and it's Pontius Pilate and he's standing in front of a huge Jewish crowd the weekend of the Passover. And we'll read this straight from the text in Matthew 27. It says, now it was the governor's custom at the festival to release a prisoner chosen by the crowd. And at that time, they had a well-known prisoner whose name was Jesus Barabbas. So when the crowd had gathered, Pilate asked them, which one do you want me to release to you? Jesus Barabbas? or Jesus who is called the Messiah. And so Pilate gives the crowd the choice between these two prisoners. And Matthew's gospel, interesting enough, tells us that they were both named Jesus. The other gospels simply call him Barabbas, but Matthew tells us his first name was Jesus, Barabbas, son of the father. Um, we don't know a ton about Barabbas, but we do know he was a well-known criminal who had <clears throat> led an insurrection that ended up with people getting killed. And so he was in prison, essentially on death row, waiting for the day of his execution. But now, Pilate brings Jesus Barabbas up on the platform with Jesus of Nazareth, and he asks the crowd what he should do. So read on, Matthew 27. Which of the two do you want me to release to you? Asked the governor. Barabbas, they answered. Well, what shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, crucify him. And in verse 26, then he released Barabbas to them, but he had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. The question that Pilate asked the crowd on that Good Friday wasn't just which prisoner should I release, but which Jesus do you want? And the crowd said, we want Jesus Barabbas. And in so doing, they chose to put a known criminal back on the street and they sent Jesus, the one called Messiah, to the electric chair. And that's what happened. Okay? That was our flashback from 50 days ago. Now we go back to Pentecost. Peter's standing before a crowd that includes many of the very same people that were in the crowd before Pilate 
50 days before. The crowd that chose Jesus Barabbas over Jesus of Nazareth. And again, what does Peter say to these people in verse 36? He says, God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. Which Jesus? This Jesus, the one you crucified. Peter uses that phrase, this Jesus, three times in his Pentecost sermon. What's he telling the crowd? You chose the wrong Jesus. Now, from a biblical perspective, I have to be honest and tell you, I don't know for sure that that's the connection Peter was trying to make. I don't know for sure that he was trying to compare Jesus of Nazareth to Jesus Barabbas. Either way, they chose the wrong Jesus. And of course, this wouldn't be the last time in history people would choose the wrong Jesus. Over the last 2,000 years, all kinds of people have chosen the wrong Jesus. And I know that I am just as guilty as anyone else. Which Jesus do we choose? Well, we choose a Jesus that is often made in our own image and likeness. We choose a Jesus that just so happens to look a lot like us, racially, politically, ideologically. We like to choose our favorite version of Jesus, like in Talladega Nights, right? My favorite Jesus is the eight pound, six pound, six ounce newborn infant Jesus, right? We're just like that. When it comes to the question of which Jesus you choose, it's really easy to choose the wrong one. And the message that Peter has for the crowd that day is that they chose the wrong Jesus and in so doing, they had murdered the one who loved them most. Let's think about this from Jesus' perspective for just a moment. This is a pretty morbid question, but what's the worst thing that could happen to someone? What's the worst thing that a human being could have to experience? I might argue that the worst thing that could happen to someone is to be so hated that the people you love nail you to a tree so they don't have to deal with you. I don't know if it gets much worse than that. Let's talk about those nails for a moment. The people who crucified Jesus used nails to keep him on the cross because that's where they wanted him. Nailed to the cross, he was out of their way no longer capable of disrupting the empire. The nails were their way of excluding him from their lives and not having to deal with him anymore. And of course, this isn't just what happened. This is what happens. If we're honest, if we're really honest, I think nailed to the cross is exactly where we want him to. Because when he's nailed, that means that my sins are forgiven, but I don't need to worry about him interrupting my life. When he's nailed, that means that I'm safe from him, free to ignore him. When he's nailed, Jesus can't ruin my fun. 
or challenge my choices or change my plans. And if I'm honest, that's where I want him. Because if he weren't nailed, then we'd all be forced to deal with him. And he would confront us and contradict us at times. He would ask us to do things we'd rather not do and believe things we'd rather not believe. But as long as he's nailed and doing what he's supposed to do, which is saving us from sin, then we're free from all of his expectations for us. He can't ask anything of me when he's nailed. So all of a sudden, we see ourselves in the crowd that Peter's preaching to that day. This Jesus whom you crucified, we are part of that crowd. Because we also choose to nail Jesus down all the time. Every time we ignore him, when we disobey him, when we want him tamed or confined to the little part of our life we call religion or spirituality. We don't want him intruding or disrupting our lives. So we nail him to a cross where he can take his place as Savior, but not Lord. So this is what Martin Luther meant when he wrote, we all carry about in our pockets his very nails. Now, this is true at an individual level of you and I, but it's also true at a societal level. It was for the Jewish people as a whole, and it is for us, and it always has been. In my doctoral research recently, I came across a sermon given by the famous Chicago pastor, D.L. Moody. And in this sermon, Moody makes this same claim about the United States as a whole. He asserts that even though we need Jesus, we as a nation don't want him. And apparently when he gave this sermon, it didn't go over very well with everyone in the room. So listen to this real quick. Moody goes, if Christ should come to the world today, it would not welcome him. If put to a popular vote, I do not believe that a single state would vote for Jesus to reign here as he reigns in heaven. I do not believe a single county, a single ward in this city, a single precinct in this country would vote for his coming. We don't want him. There's no room for him in our hearts or in our homes or in our hearts. He goes, the political parties wouldn't want him. The Republicans would vote for the biggest scoundrel on earth rather than him. <laughs> and the Democrats would vote solidly against him. All right, now he's reading the room and he goes, I see some of you shaking your heads. Well, shake them, I'm talking facts. <laughs> Do you know what year D.L. Moody gave this sermon? 1898. This was 125 years ago. Jesus was just as unpopular back then as he is now. And so we continue to find ways to do to him what people have always done to him in keeping him nailed out of the way. And as I mentioned, one of our favorite ways to do this is by choosing a Jesus of our own making, which could be anything. It could be the white American God and country conservative Jesus 
with his AR-15 who wants you to kneel for the cross and stand for the flag. Or it could be the progressive, enlightened, woke, liberal Jesus who's spiritual but not religious and wants you to define truth and morality for yourself. I see some of you shaking your heads. Well, shake them. <laughs> I'm talking truth. The real Jesus isn't white. He's not American. He's not a Republican or a Democrat. He's not a socialist nor a capitalist. He's also not a therapist who tells you to believe everything you feel or a magic genie who exists to make all your dreams come true or a judgy mother-in-law whose expectations you'll never live up to. We have all kinds of Jesuses that we choose over the real Jesus and whenever we do, we send the one who loves us the most and the only one who could save us to the cross. So the question for today and every day is which Jesus will you choose? The Jesus that you've created in your own image and likeness? Or this Jesus whom you crucified? He was both Messiah and Lord. If the worst thing that can happen to you is to be so hated that the people you love nail you to a tree, then I think that the worst thing you could do is to hate someone who loves you so much that you nail them to a cross so you don't have to deal with them anymore. And that's what we did. And that's what we do. God sent his son into the world that he loves to save it and we killed him. His blood is on our hands. But, as we lean, lean further into this story, we find that even though it was our nails that put Jesus on the cross, it wasn't those nails that kept him there. As Jesus hung there on the cross between the two criminals, the crowd gathered around and they hurled insults at him and mocked him, saying, if you are the son of God, then come down from there. If you really are the Messiah and the Lord, then save yourself. Jesus could have come down from the cross. He could have saved himself. But he didn't. It wasn't the nails that kept him there. It was his love. His sacrificial, self-denying, co-suffering love for sinners like you and me who wanted him dead. And what's interesting is that the mocking words from these onlookers, without them even knowing it, reveal the uniqueness of Jesus' death and why it mattered. And that is that Jesus can't save both himself and us. And it's precisely because he refused to save himself that he was able to save you and me. And so while it's true that you and I put Jesus on the cross and chose for him to die, it was ultimately Jesus who chose to die for us.
And that, of course, is the glorious irony of the cross, of the fact that we call it Good Friday. It's that as we confess our complicity and our guilt in Jesus' death, we also, at the exact same time, receive his grace and mercy and the forgiveness of our sins, including our sin of rejecting him and putting him on the cross. So remember, as Jesus was being nailed, what was he praying to his father? Father, forgive them. Forgive them. John Stott once wrote, until you see the cross as that which is done by you, you will never appreciate that it is done for you. Once we own the fact that it was our sin and rejection of God's love that put Christ on the cross, only then are we free to see ourselves as the recipients of God's love. A God who not only suffers with us, but suffers for us. That's the good news and the bad news of Peter's sermon. How does the crowd respond? Last verse, Acts 2, verse 37. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So what's interesting is that Peter doesn't offer any theories about how the atonement works here. He simply bears witness to the fact that Christ who died lives again and he's given us his spirit. That's what happened. That's the news. And they want to know, well, what should we do then? How shall we respond? And he tells them two things. Repent and be baptized. To repent means to stop, to turn around, and to go the other way. Gary Bashirs says to repent is to change your mind about who's God around here. We repent not only of our wrong actions, but also of our wrong motivations. And of choosing the wrong Jesus. We stop, we look at it, we name it before God, and we go the other way. So first, we repent, and secondly, be baptized. What's baptism? Baptism is a sign of our incorporation into the death and resurrection of Jesus. When we go down into the water, we share with Christ in his death, and then when we come up out of the water, we share in his resurrection. And so baptism is really a miniature reenactment of the gospel story, the story of what Jesus has done for us. So baptism isn't something we do for God. It's something he does for us. You can't baptize yourself. If you've tried, that's just called swimming or bathing or something. <laughs> to be baptized, someone else has to do it to you. It's something you receive. Baptism is a gift. 
Now, if you're a Christian, you've most likely been baptized, and so you may think, well, this doesn't apply to me. But notice he doesn't say get baptized. He says repent and be baptized. He's not just talking about a one-time event. He's talking about a new way of being. He's talking about a way of life, which is why we keep this baptism tank on stage every single Sunday, even when we're not using it. It's a sign to us to remind us of our baptism that unites us with Christ and his church. So repent and don't just get baptized, be baptized and receive the grace of Jesus in the forgiveness of your sins and the gift of his Holy Spirit. Antioch, I've got some good news for you. This Jesus whom you crucified, God has raised him from the dead. And he is now in us. And we are now in him. If you have a group of people that believe that, word is going to spread and the world is going to change. Amen. Amen.